Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a very special guest. Lara, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth and Karen. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Lara Powers. I've been working in the anti-human trafficking field for over 10 years now. I'm the former director of the National Human Trafficking Hotline, where I saw thousands and thousands of cases of trafficking across the United States. Uh, and I'm currently a consultant, and I consult for a variety of uh, different clients, the United Nations, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, and um, a variety of nonprofits uh, um, in the United States and actually internationally as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, today. Um, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you was because something that I've been noticing online is the way that people in parents groups on Facebook and in other spaces talk about trafficking and human trafficking. And in some ways, it sounds like some people have kind of gotten caught up in some common myths and urban legends. Uh, the last episode that we did for this podcast was an interview with the journalist Kira Butler, who writes about how QAnon targets moms and moms groups. So now we wanted to get more of the facts from more of an expert on human trafficking. You know, we had the what's false, and now we kind of want to find out what's true. Uh, I just wanted to clarify, do you work for the Polaris still, or you're not there anymore? Yes, I do. Um, well, they're one of my primary clients, so I'm still very involved. Um, but as a consultant, I, I have other clients as well. Okay. And I just wanted to disclose that um, my husband, Adam Lee, wrote a book with Andrew Murtaugh, and they gave uh, part of their profits to the Polaris Project. And on their book tour, they they raised money for the Polaris Project because that's Andrew's church's favorite charity. So just a connection there. <laughs> it's kind of neat. In, in 2017, you wrote an article for the LA Times that I'm still sharing right now called Why a Mom's Facebook Warning About Human Traffickers Hurts Sex Trafficked Kids. And I was wondering if we could start there about that article and why you chose to write it. Yeah. Um, wow, that article. So I, um, first of all, I'm a mom now. I wasn't a mom when I read the article or when I wrote it, but I am now. I have a four-year-old and I can absolutely re relate to the fear that you feel as a parent and trying to keep your kids safe, right? So just putting that out there for anyone that I completely understand that, you know, the world can be a scary place and protecting your kid can be just a very, very challenging and scary thing to do. Um, however, when, you know, the, the article, the, the Facebook post that I was responding to was not the only one, right? Like this had become a, a pretty cultural norm where there were these very sensationalized, mythologized depictions of trafficking. Um, and um, this particular post, um, again, coming from a very concerned mom, understandably so, um, really misrepresented what trafficking actually looks like. And the reason that I couldn't let it go is because I knew that when the general public, when, when communities do not understand what trafficking actually looks like, kids who need help, fall through the cracks, right? And so if you have parents who are concerned about a child um, being taken from a department store in broad daylight while their mother is like right with them, um, they're going to miss the kids who are one runaway homeless youth at a bus stop, right? Or um, children that come from um, a, you know, unstable home or family life, um, you know, traffickers and trafficking in general is a high reward, low risk crime. And one of the reasons is that 
practice look for the most vulnerable among us, right? Um, and so the issue with misrepresenting trafficking, it's not, not one of those, oh, it's better safe than sorry type situations. What it actually does is it means that we are not informed as a community on, on how to spot it and then perhaps extend a lifeline to a child who is actually being trafficked. And so I was just, you know, I kind of reached this point of really wanting to get the word out. Um, and then another part that really bothered me with how everything, you know, went down with that particular post is I saw in the comment section over and over all of these survivors sharing their stories saying, hey, this isn't how it works. Like, this is actually what happened to me. Um, and the vitriol and, and just really hate that was spewed towards them for speaking out was shocking to be honest and again i know what it's like to be a concerned parent but um i was really surprised at, at just the level of angst and i think that having reflected entirely on the situation i think that trafficking is often an outlet for our anxieties as communities you know whether it's anxieties about race class um our children being harmed and you know the mythology kind of aids in that outlet um all that said, kids do get hurt. Adults get hurt when we don't understand what trafficking actually looks like. If you were going to write that article again now, is there anything that you would change or do you think people should still refer to it? Um, you know, I think there, there isn't anything I would change. I, I, um, actually, I might have more to say on it. I think that the mythology has, has you know, you mentioned QAnon, um, which is an extreme example of how trafficking can be wielded um, and really used uh, to further agendas that have nothing to do with actually helping victims and survivors of trafficking. Um, and that's just really a devastating thing, right? When, when a movement that is so important, um, when we're talking about really when you think about what human trafficking is, which is the crystallization of multiple forms of oppression, right? Um, when you think about it that way, to see a movement hijacked for overtly racist, fascist, you know, agendas, that is, you know, there's, there's a certain betrayal there that's really hard that, and just, again, devastating for victims and survivors that, that really should have a voice, you know, and, and a platform to share real authentic experiences as well as how it affects our response to trafficking. I think you're, uh, we're doing a pretty good job at kind of debunking the myths and how it doesn't work. What are the facts? What do, what do parents actually need to know? And anybody who's not a parent, anybody who's concerned about the issue. I want to start off with, with saying it's a very diverse crime. It's a very diverse experience, right? So it really depends on the population we're talking about here um, because labor trafficking in agricultural uh, agriculture, for example, looks very different than um, interfamilial sex trafficking um, within the United States. So there are so many different things, but I think, you know, depending on um, the, the population of parents we're talking about, I would say that, um, you know, one of the, the biggest vulnerabilities is not having, um, one, a support system or, right, like an, um, the stability and relationships that adults, someone looking out for you. Um, kids with past histories of sex abuse, especially are vulnerable. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because when you experience childhood sexual abuse, a lot becomes normalized, right? 
um, you know, it becomes way easier to, to manipulate a child um, into commercial sex um, because they've already been abused in that way. Um, and you'll see that kind of, that, that like textbook predatory, very calculated way of manipulating kids. Um, but all that aside, I think also there's, um, you know, kids who are um, LGBT, especially from the trans community, leaving homes, right? Um, highly vulnerable um, and uh, those spaces. And, but really, if you think about anyone who's just so trafficking again, like a lot of forms of abuse, it, it really preys on vulnerability. So mental health issues, um, addiction can absolutely play a role where that might be leveraged by someone, by a trafficker um, to exploit someone. So I think it's really about as communities looking at um, various forms of anti-oppression, anti-racism, um, right? So trafficking, I think that, you know, as we work towards the goal of a world without exploitation, what we really need to also be working at are all the different systems that allow that exploitation to happen, right? Um, so in order to make trafficking not be a thing, we have to solve racism, we have to solve sexism, all of those very big issues, again, come together to create the vulnerability that, uh, that really allows someone to be exploited. I'm not sure if that exactly answered your question because it is such just a huge question, but... Um... No, that's, that's a great start. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand that it's a much more complicated issue than the way that the internet can make you think that it is. But to ask a more specific question, um, you see a lot of these stats, you know, like one million people are going to be trafficked for the Super Bowl or there's going to be this many child prostitutes at the RNC or whatever. How do we know, like, what stats are real and how do we know what information is true on this issue? So I would say definitely look at where the information is coming from, right? So if someone's giving you a statistic that is, first of all, um, very specific in terms of prevalence, I would question it because trying to get an exact prevalence statistic for trafficking is almost an impossibility. I mean, we've been working on this. I work in research in the field. Um, I love researching data, but again, the crime is so diverse. It's a very hard to reach population that if there are very hard numbers, like 1 million, um, unless they're, they're qualifying that statement with this is an estimate, I think that would be the first thing that would give me pause to say, hey, look, let's look where this is coming from. I will say that um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline has a lot of very solid data and having worked on that hotline, I know exactly you know, how the assessments are done. Um, and also what you'll see is the language that is used is we are talking about potential trafficking cases. And the reason we use that language is because we know that it really is going to be a direct service provider on the ground, for example, that is going to do a full intake and assessment to, de to determine um, whether or not trafficking is actually occurring. Uh, that said, the, the, the methods by which, you know, trafficking is assessed on the hotline are, are very rigorous and well-informed. So um, I would trust data from the hotline and then, you know, data that's released by law enforcement, certainly cases, that, that's, that's a pretty sure bet. Um, but yeah, data is hard. It's, it's one of those things that, that has been um, one of the more challenging parts of the anti-trafficking field. You'll see wildly different numbers, right? Um, the other thing is, you know, you mentioned the Super Bowl. Um, currently in the anti-trafficking field, there's no information that there's actually a spike in trafficking during the Super Bowl. Um, and I think that, you know, in my work in the anti-trafficking field, I've had conversations about, well, 
it does bring more awareness, right? Like there is a conversation about it happening, but, but you're trying to balance that versus like this actually is not a spike, that trafficking is happening every day, you know, 365 days a year. It's not just because of, you know, an RNC conference or the Super Bowl that in fact, traffickers are way smarter than that. Like if there's like some big event that everyone's looking at and saying, hey, kids are, or adults are gonna get trafficked, you know, traffickers are gonna stay away from that. Um, and it's just way easier to exploit someone under the radar than when you've got, you know, multiple law enforcement agencies watching an event to try to do bus to, to you know, quote unquote, rescue people, um, which is also problematic. And I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, yeah, I have like three questions. <laughs> what you just said. Um, do, do you wanna go more into that, I guess? No, I can go wherever you'd like. I have just so much um, to say and appreciate the time. Thank you. What, what I was going to say was when you said like it's much smaller than that was was like my next question about, um, you know, people talk about this, this grand, I'm sorry for the word cabal of people, but is, is it really like a huge organized crime ring or rings or is it like a smaller scale crime? So, you know, certainly we do see organized crime involved in trafficking, right? That, that is, that is the truth. Um, however, uh, and again, I'm going to be very cautious. I don't want to give any prevalence here because we don't know, but I will tell you what I have seen in my work in the field and especially on the hotline is that, yes, we'll get some organized crime. We will get a lot of, um, more opportunistic, less organized type crime, right? So, um, a drug addicted parent who is offering their child for sex to be able to, you know, um, get their next fix and doesn't have the help that they need to get what they need. Um, it may be, again, I, I gave the example of just runaway homeless youth kids that just don't have anyone looking out for them. Um, but the, the organized crime cabal type situation is, I think, again, it's that mythology, right? It's, you know, if you've seen the movie Taken, this idea that, you know, survivor, you know, victims of trafficking are tied up in chains and that's not how it works. I was actually going to ask you about that. Yeah. And my question is, have you seen the movie Zola? And is that a better example of how it works? You know what? I've heard of it. I try to be very careful to like protect myself, like to not watch movies about trafficking. I have seen Taken, mm -hmm. but um, so I haven't, I have heard of it. Um, and I can't remember if I've heard good things or bad things. I, I really have yet to see a very, um, generally the, the, the depictions of trafficking I've seen within like movies and stuff have not been accurate, but I have not seen Zola. So I don't want to. Yeah, it's it's a woman, and it's based on her her true story about uh, being like a dancer and like being told she was going to another city to dance, and it was turned like out that they were trying to to force her force her into prostitution. So, to me, it seemed like that that it's kind of like a more real world analogy. But as not as a layperson, I have no idea. So that's why I was going to ask you. I would say if it is coming directly from a survivor, absolutely, right. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much creative control that person had and what they have happen because this happens to survivors as well they tell their story yeah. and then all of a sudden it gets spun but i will say that yes if it's a survivor speaking we should mm -hmm. listen right because they know firsthand how it goes and you know in terms of accurate depictions and and zola i don't however that played out versus taken coercion right so in order to have it be trafficking you need to have a few things you need to have um an action this is for the, the trafficking victims protection act which is our federal legislation against trafficking um, you have to have an action, so it could be transporting, harboring, um, providing, 
Uh, there are all these verbs that, that go along with it, but you have to have a means, which is force, fraud, or coercion, right? So you could provide a person by means of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of commercial sex or labor. And that's how we define trafficking legally in the United States. Um, and what we see far more often than force is coercion. So coercion is manipulation, right? It's that psychological manipulation that you'll see in domestic violence, um, right? You'll, you'll see in different kinds of, uh, you know, child sex abuse, certainly you see coercion. Um, and the reason is because, you know, if you change someone to a bed or a wall, they are going to try to get free the second they can. Whereas if you control someone's understanding and perception of the situation, right? So let's say it's a vulnerable young woman who meets a guy who's going to take care of her and loves her and tells her how awesome she is. And she hasn't ever had that before. And there's this grooming period, this honeymoon period. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, baby, you know, this is for us. You've got to go do this just for us. Um, you know, and, and that's, that can be how it starts. And it can be very difficult to even recognize that you're being exploited in that situation. And so that's why, you know, you will have survivors come into contact with law enforcement and say, no, I'm fine. Right. I had mentioned the rescue component. And the reason that's problematic is because if you go bust someone's door down, you are potentially and probably likely um, to put a victim in more danger because they may not be ready to even see their situation um, for what it is. And they're not gonna snitch on their tractor. They're not gonna talk to you. But then when the door closes, they're likely gonna have repercussions, right? From their tractor for that, that intervention. So um, making sure that survivors always have complete agency and control over when they leave and how they leave is also really important to keeping people safe. So with that in mind, I'm reminded of, I know that a, a good deal of sex worker activists have been strongly opposed to both SESTA and FOSTA, which prevent uh, online advertising of sex for money services. And my, I you know, there's always a lot of pushback whenever there's a, a public debate around this that actually... A lot of sex workers have been coerced into doing sex work. And so from your perspective in working with trafficking and particularly with your sensitivity to the concept of coercion, I'm I'm really curious to hear the nuanced take that I'm I'm sure you must be kind of sitting with. And I can see it on your face that you're not thrilled about. No, this. I love this question. It's also the hardest question in the field. Totally. Um and Full disclosure, so I'm a survivor of trafficking mm -hmm. um, and I'm very well connected with, you know, my survivor community. Um, and there is this real tension in understanding, one, the fluidity of perceptions of exploitation, right? Um, that you might move in and out of a sex trafficking situation where, like, you're independent, then you're not, then you, right? It's not, like, a very clear-cut experience for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, there is there are communities again, particularly the trans community, that, that sex work is the best of very limited options given what that community is facing in terms of the discrimination there. there it's just so complex and multi-layered. However, I will also say that as a survivor, you know, the men who bought me for sex, I have just, there, there's just honestly more abusive, more harm to me than the person who trafficked me. 
right? There was like, that's where the commodification happens. That's where I truly felt like an object, right? Everything, the manipulation and the coercion, that was, again, a more complicated experience. Mm -hmm. When someone buys your body, it's pretty clear cut and it's very, it's just so damaging. And so, again, like, this is a complicated situation where you have people who want justice, who want to be able to say, hey, this person bought me for sex and that shouldn't be okay. Um, and the communities that, because of the, the, the oppressive systems that we have that rely on sex work, because that's what is, you know, available. I mean, you know, and that's, that's the best option of very limited options. And some people who truly enjoy it, like th this is the thing, it is a spectrum. And acknowledging that as well, that there's some people, this is what I want to do, and I'm empowered and I'm safe. Um, I don't think our current legislation really cuts it um, because it's very binary. It's like, it's got to be one or the other. Um, the way our legislation is implemented is also difficult because, you know, technically under the TVPA, if you are, you know, buying sex from a trafficking survivor, it's a crime. Try to enforce that law. How do you even prove that in court that they're just not you know it, it's just so much more complicated and so then you have survivors that feel like well all these people got away with it and then they just going to continue to do it um you didn't ask for my two cents but if you want it and i would love everyone to hear this because if someone wants to run with this legislation i feel like if we made um you know trafficking if you bought sex from a trafficking survivor if it was a strict liability crime right if it was like a statutory rape where it was much more enforceable that, hey, it doesn't matter if you didn't know, because guess what? You're probably not going to know. I have survivor friends that are like, I should earn an Academy Award for the acting I did because you have to. You pretend, right? You know, the, the survivors that are bought for sex are not like, again, chained to a bed. They are going to perform because if you don't, then there are consequences. And so if there was a way to kind of balance out making sure that we could hold people accountable for directly participating in the exploitation of another person while also ensuring that those within the commercial sex industry that are there because they want to or that right that that they can be safe and I mean, that's really what we need to solve as a community um and i don't have all the answers but i do think that right now there's just so much understandable anger and fear and um you know just in the discussion, especially within survivor communities and within sex worker communities that um, just makes it really tough because from my perspective, I get what I get where all of it's coming from. Um, and so if we could actually find a way to really come together and kind of step back and be like, because I feel like we're also being exploited again, right, in this conversation that that mm. um, it's kind of you know, pitted against one another and it's got to be one or the other. And I would love to see like a conference where we could like all come together and be like, hey, Allies outside, no, this is going to be just anyone involved in the commercial sex industry, whether it's by, you know, their own volition, force, fraud, coercion, that we come together and can talk about our shared experiences and our different experiences and how to best solve them. We have not had that yet. It's just, uh, and so that was my facial expression when you asked the question. This is just one of the most complicated issues, and um, but it's so important, right? Because there's, yeah. And then there's also the element of commercial sex tra trafficking that the the labor is legal with pornography, uh, and the the regulation there also has nuance because the I mean it's patently clear that there's coercion in that legal industry that is 
very similar, if not the same, is prostitution without a camera. Right. Yeah. Again, these are really difficult things. And, you know, part of me is I, you know, I have a a good friend who works, she's a a survivor um, in Ireland. And one of the things she said was like, hey, if a person needs to eat, you don't put a dick in their mouth, you put food in their mouth, right? So there's, I'm sorry if I said that on your podcast, excuse my language, but that's the reality is that on one hand, we should be solving the actual systemic issues that are making people feel like they're in a position where they have to sell their bodies and they don't want to, right? Taking aside the, mm-hmm. those who, who actually are doing it, right? Because they want to, and that's like they're calling and they want to do it. But everyone else, um, right? So we talk about coercion, but then the circumstantial population, those who just do it because they can't feed their kids and get minimum wage at the dollar store to provide for them, right? Um, mm-hmm. And they should have other options. If it's not what they, no one should have to sell their bodies in order to feed themselves or their children, or right? Um, it should be only something that is safe and okay for those who truly, truly want it. And so I think, again, tying it back full circle to when I mentioned the things we really need to solve the self-trafficking are poverty, right? Oppression, racism, all of these things that make people vulnerable and, and put people in a position where they're either going to be um, coerced and exploited or in a position where that's what they feel like their only option is. Um, we've got to get to the, the root layer of why that's happening. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be Band-Aid solutions. Yeah, it seems like it's almost kind of an unclear distinction where you draw the line between interpersonal coercion and economic coercion. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to borrow a phrase from one of my favorite podcasts, it was capitalism all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the yeah. villain. <laughs> yeah, right. So we got to solve that too. This is the thing. There's just like, it's a tall order. Um, I see a lot yeah. of room for unity though across these different fields within the trafficking space, right? So as much as the trafficking space is exploited by, you know, uh, harmful agendas, there is also real opportunity for multiple different spaces that are working on social justice movements to really come together. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And, you know, is brings me a lot of hope and, and kind of keeps me going sometimes and thinking about the possibilities of, of that intersection. Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing from your experience. You know, I'm a, a clinical psych student, so I, I understand what it takes to do that. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for you to share that. And I hope that our audience can really benefit from that. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Shifting to a question that ties into, again, back to the QAnon theme is... I'm wondering, you know, when we have these kind of high profile cases with Epstein or Sayville, it becomes more difficult to kind of disrupt the concept that the people who are commonly involved in sex trafficking rings are the cultural elites um, and politicians. And I I, I actually don't know how, how much veracity there is to that assumption you know I don't know um my suspicion is that predominantly um it's not cultural elites who are doing the trafficking um potentially that they are doing some of the purchasing like to people 
clearly do feel that that this is indicative of the common versions of the boogeyman that is operating in everyday life that we can't see. Would you say that they look that way? I So this is actually really interesting um, because for so long we have been pushing back on this stereotypical trafficker who's a, usually a man of color, um, a foreign burn, per, right, in, in an inner city, right? There was a very racist, overtly racist stereotype of what a trafficker looked like. And so within mm-hmm. the anti-trafficking field, we've done a lot of work in pushing back against that because that's not the case, right? You, you, you do see that, but you also see, you know, doctors, lawyers, politicians who may be, so, you know, the, the political climate again, um, and I am totally speculating here because there's a lack of data, right? But, you know, if you buy sex from someone who's under 18, that person is automatically considered a trafficking victim, regardless of whether or not there is forced product coercion, right? Yeah, if you put I think that, that that's yeah. appropriate. Yeah, right? I'm comfortable with that legislation. <laughs> right. So that's part of the TVPA. And so if you were to take an underage person in your car and transport them for the purpose of commercial sex, bam, that's trafficking. And then you, right? So certainly legally speaking. And I, um, I just want to reiterate, though, that trackers are the ones with power. They have some kind of power, right? Or they wouldn't be able to do what they do. There's, whether it's cultural power, economic power, social power, there's something there that allows them to be able to exploit someone. Um, and I think that one of the things that I've seen is there are so many, so many survivors who feel like they couldn't reach out for help because the person trafficking them was the doctor in the white middle-class suburban neighborhood that, you know, no one would believe them. Right. And that's part of the coercion. Like no one's going to believe you. There's no way against, you know, my word against yours, not going to happen. So when you, so, you know, the, the cabal theory, this, this, that is, is very different though. I, I, I want to make sure I'm very clear with anyone listening that that's not what I'm endorsing. That is just not happening. That there's this very sophisticated organized crime, um, you know, within the political sector that is trafficking kids. We have not seen that. There is no evidence of that whatsoever, but I also want to make clear that traffickers again have power. So I wouldn't want to discount um, the possibility of that, even though I have not seen it firsthand, a politician trafficking someone outside of the example I gave, right? We do have a who's been charged with sex trafficking for, um, you know, having an underage person in his car. I, I, I might get this, the story kind of wrong, but that was basically what happened, right? There was, he was buying sex from an underage person. Um, it met the federal definition of trafficking and that allegedly this is what happened, right? Uh, allegedly that's what happened. So, um, but yeah, there's no, there's no cabal that, that unfortunately is, and I'm, I'm sure you well know that, you know, when you play on people's fears, it's really easy to mobilize them. Right. And so, so with that in mind, what might somebody who's concerned about their children and their children's kind of social literacy in terms of preventing getting snatched up trafficked because that's usually what you see um particularly on social media i mean i have this is not something that i would ever have expected to be in my feed but on, i've seen tiktoks where it was like i was almost trafficked today you know um and so for people who have these kinds of fear of interpersonal violence that is kind of being mixed and 
mashed with this kind of cultural fear around trafficking. Um, And so I don't want to say, like, I walk faster when a man walks too close behind me as well. My personal fear is not for trafficking right now. I have kind of a different cultural set of fears. Um, So if somebody was concerned that their children might not pick up on on cues of unsafe people in public spaces as it relates to trafficking what would you kind of suggest to parents to safeguard their children so it sounds like some of it is you know don't kick your kids out for being of a vulnerable identity (laughs) seems like maybe a number one really great way to start yeah is there anything yeah well i would say first like don't expect kids to be able to pick up on it right going back to the fact that we're talking about you know very calculated sophisticated manipulation and coercion um, and how easy kids are to manipulate right you know whatever the vulnerability is that's what is going to be preyed on so i would say first and foremost don't expect your kids you know stranger danger is not a thing here this is um and i this i you'd also don't want to terrify your kids to death and have them be afraid of the world so you know but i think that um starting with listening to your kids, right? Um, There are protective factors that will make it harder for a person to manipulate your child if that child has an open line of communication and they feel safe with you, right? And they trust you to talk. Um, Because if that's not there, um, they're gonna talk to someone who's trying to exploit them and they're gonna like, oh, you can listen to me and your parents don't listen. Um, That said, I don't have a teenager but I have been a teenager and I know that it can be very hard to get your teenage kids to talk to you, but even just saying, hey, I'm here, right? Um, and being non-judgmental about it. Um, I think especially if for whatever reason your child, you know, and you know, a teenager, let's say, is involved in commercial sex for whatever reason, the fear of maybe you know, talking to a parent about that could be a huge barrier and point of vulnerability. Um, so again, just, in the same ways that we'd look to protect and safeguard our children from any kind of abuse, right? In which an adult is manipulating, coercing them um, is how we should go about it. There's nothing unique about trafficking in that sense, right? It's just predatory behavior. You know, I was about to ask, you know, how do you respond to this misinformation? And obviously one of the ways was writing an (laughs) (laughs) op-ed. But do you engage with people you know, who posts things like that if it ends up on your Facebook feed? I used to and I don't anymore because it's really hard. I mean, just, again, just the boundaries I've had to set at least for now because I have found the conversation so exhausting, right? Um, Especially as a person with lived experience to be told, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And then as a professional who has been working in the field for, you know, over a decade to be told, oh, no, that's not right. That's really painful. And that's just, that's, and so, you know, in order to stay resilient in the work I do, um, I don't engage anymore. Um, I've also found actually that it's not effective to engage online in the comment section. People just, you know, there's an echo chamber. People hear what they want to hear and they ignore comments that are actually sound. I have found the op-ed component to be much more effective. Um, But I think also, you know, if there are people within communities that are looking to flip the script on the awareness piece, there's so much you can do, right? Any kind of community organizing, right? Where you are getting real information about trafficking, right? From trusted organizations like Polaris Project um, and spreading the word within your community about what it actually looks like 
uh, has a huge impact on this cultural phenomenon we've been experiencing within the trafficking field for the past, I would say, seven years, 10 years, right? Um, maybe since the beginning. It's hard, you know, the TVPA, our, our legislation that I had mentioned, um, we didn't pass that until the year 2000, right? So trafficking, like there was nothing specific um, to the experience of trafficking in, in the modern day that was, there, that was, you know, illegal. There was no, there was no legislation about it. So 22 years is not a long time to develop a response. There's still so much that we have to work towards, but towards the latter half of those two decades, we, we definitely, again, have seen an uptick in this mythologizing and sensationalism and really hijacking of the movement that is ultimately harmful to those we're working to serve, right? I was going to say, Karen, did you mean you as in Lara specifically, or you as in should the audience do that? But Lara asked, answered both questions. So, Well, I, I was asking you, Laura, as a, a model <laughs> of ideal behavior. <laughs> so it's like, you got to know your kid too, right? Like my daughter, when she's, you know, I, I'm not so worried about now. Like I can keep her safe now. I, I, but when she's a teenager... I don't know. I'm going to at least, again, what I said, like keep an open community, right? Make sure that relationship is strong. Um, and go from there. I think it's, it's just the same way you protect your child from any kind of abuse. It's, it's very individual in a sense, right? You have to be in tune with your kid because the way one child might respond or one teenager might respond versus another is going to be different. So know your child, trust them and listen. Um, because if trafficking is happening, even if they feel like, oh, this is what I want because they're being manipulated, there's going to be a part of them that doesn't want it. I can promise any parent out there that like, it, even if they're totally in love with the trafficker and they think that's what they want, there is going to be a part of them that does not want it because it is such a brutally dehumanizing experience. And I think the other thing is the online piece. You know, if your kid's just on the internet and has, you know, there's no oversight or at least conversation about how to stay safe online. Um, that can open up the door for um, predatory people to start building a grooming relationship with your kids. So um, I'm not saying don't respect your teenager's privacy because that's also an important part of trust, but certainly make sure that like, you know, talk about grooming, talk about what that looks like. Um, give kids the facts on, hey, you know, this is what happens. Somebody might come and say, you know, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. Um, you're so good at this, right? Like whatever it is a teenager might need to hear. Um, mm. If you can equip your kids with the red flags to at least say, hey, mom or dad, you know, somebody just said this to me, right? Um, that can be effective as well. It's interesting the way that you describe kind of being in this kind of coercive love style like perverse love i feel like love is a terrible word for it but it's it is reminiscent of um again kind of pulling back into the q anon theme you know of people who are very kind of coerced into this this q cult you know um how difficult it can be when they feel as though they want to be in this movement, they feel very connected to this movement uh, at great cost to themselves, at the loss of their families, um, 
and their livelihoods uh, and sometimes their freedom for people who are were involved in uh, the January 6th uh, experience. And, uh, and so it's interesting because I am hearing kind of these parallels in confronting as saying like, you know, this is bullshit, uh, is not actually helpful. Not at all. Yeah. But being available mm-hmm. in and turning a non judgmental eye to them and, and letting them know that you're a safe person if they do want to leave ever, um, it is what was recommended um in a another piece that that we had read about um about uh QAnon in particular as it relates to mom's groups and trafficking. Yeah, it's I I think you're spot on. I think that it is the same thing you're talking about vulnerabilities being exploited, right? Like they're that they're mm-hmm. and that's exactly how trafficking works. That they're whatever the vulnerability is, um whether it's the QAnon, you know, cultural phenomenon meeting the needs that you just have don't, you know, that are gaps in you or a trafficker doing the same. Um, you know, and also drawing attention to there's more than just sex trafficking, labor trafficking is also a huge thing. And, and you see the same kind of thing in terms of vulnerability, um, right? So somebody leaves their country of origin, comes to the United States for a job that they think is, you know, computer science or whatever it is, and they get up, end up getting labor trafficked, right? But again, it comes down to vulnerabilities and a very intentional exploitation of those vulnerabilities. And when you talk about you know, the mom groups in particular, um, there is a need being met by QAnon, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why it's so hard to separate yourself from that when, you know, there's critical importance to you as a person or whatever it may be. Um, yeah. Right. And that's kind of like the, the spiral or cycle that, that sucks people in in both situations. There's this manufactured fear. Right. And then the manufactured solution is more QAnon, you know, Um, or this manufactured fear that, oh, if you leave, you know, no one will believe you, no one will trust you. I'm the only one who will take you in. And so you have to stay, you know, so there's this kind of manufacture of the problem and the solution both being really generated by this this coercive entity yep couldn't agree more i was gonna say there's the same weird cycle going on with that in terms of the way we talk about the solutions to these problems because talking about trafficking is enabled by systemic oppressions and it's a lot easier to kind of like join QAnon than it is to work on systemic problems it's probably more fun to work on QAnon than it is to work on systemic racism and lgbt oppression and so on yeah. And poverty. Yeah, particularly the puzzle part. I, I, I did. Oh, the key drops? Yeah, the breadcrumbs? Yeah. Right, yeah. So maybe the solution is giving, uh, democratizing and giving everybody a free subscription to this. <laughs> I also think that there's definitely a, an empowerment piece there, right? Where I can solve something. Like, I feel like so much is out of control in my life. And here I have this community these breadcrumbs i can just write that's 
when you don't have control over much and, and life is hard, and let's face it, life is hard. Even before the pandemic, life was hard. Like life is just hard for a lot of people, for most people. I would say everyone. Like it, it can be very difficult. And so if you're in a position where you feel like you can't solve anything to make your life easier, well, QAnon's a really great option to feel like you're doing something, especially that, that breadcrumb piece, right? Because there's an actual action you're taking to put a puzzle together. Um, so yeah, it's again, it's filling a need. It's meeting a need that people have, and that's what makes it so tricky to try to get people out because you can't just say, oh, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that you touched on about trafficking in terms of other areas besides um, sex trafficking, other, other forms of labor. And I know that that's very common in other parts of the world, and I want to know how common that was in the United States and specifically in which industries. So labor trafficking... Um, you know, actually statistically um, more prevalent only because of its diversity, right? I don't, it's happening um, just as often, if not more. That's what the stats show us, right? Um, and in terms of industries, I can tell you, you know, some of the top ones that we see, but I want to be very clear that that doesn't mean it's not happening in other, other industries. Um, so agriculture is a big one. Um, uh, you know, you'll see labor trafficking in restaurants. Um, you will see labor trafficking in um, you know, factories and, and seafood canning was one. Um, there are also uh, situations that are tied to specific visas, right? So agriculture is one of them, but there's something called the J-1 visa, for example, where students come over for like a cultural experience. Um, and so you'll see trafficking there, labor trafficking there. We've seen trafficking with Cleaning crews, traveling sales crews is one. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of someone knocking on your door trying to sell you a magazine. Um, we see trafficking in, in that sector as well. Uh, carnivals is one. Um, but I would say, just across the board, anytime there's a commercial exchange for anything, there is the possibility of trafficking. Um, and then you look at the population that's part of that system and part of that exchange and whether they're vulnerable. Um, because it is so diverse. It's, it's less about the sector and way more about, again, the fact that this is, remains a low-risk, high-opportunity tribe. I wanted to ask if you had anything else to say about the um, other ways that rescue groups are problematic besides like immediate consequences uh, to the people being trafficked. Like I think of like Nicholas Kristoff and like his like televised raids, and I think of like Vice did an expose on... Uh, Operation Underground Railroad and their kind of ties to like QAnon kind of stuff. Like, if you care to speak to that, does it like give people disinformation? Are there other things that are, are bad about these organizations? Um, so the method is bad, right? Rescue operations. Um, again, but that's first of all playing into the sensationalism and mythology that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, when it, Another way to think about it is imagine a situation of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, right? And imagine if law enforcement just beat someone's door down and went into a house and dragged a potential victim of intimate partner violence out of the house and tried to give them services. Like, think about how that would go. That person would probably be like, what the hell's going on? This is really scary. I don't need your help. And then they would go back home and then what do you think the person that is abusing them would do? Like, again, the power dynamics are always skewed in these situations, right? 
Um, and so more likely than not, that person is going to experience more abuse, possibly um, heightened, escalated lethal abuse because of that intervention. Um, again, also uh, intimate partner violence, trafficking, all these experiences are inherently disempowering. And when you take a survivor's agency away in terms of how they leave, when they leave, you are, you are replicating that experience of disempowerment. Um, so, you know, if you want to help survivors, if you want to help victims, um, having awareness materials out there that are informed with what trafficking looks like is really powerful. That is important because a lot of survivors don't realize that they're being exploited until later. I mean, it was for me 20 years after my situation, I was like, oh my God, that's what happened to me, right? Like you don't, <laughs> you're not calling it that. Um, and we've come a long way since my like light bulb moment. And you'll hear so many survivors talk about this light bulb moment of like, whoa, like I knew this was happening, but I didn't know it was trafficking. Um, and the sooner we can reach survivors with real information, right, about what's going on, the sooner that they can then have agency to leave, get help, whatever it, whatever that looks like, right? So within an awareness campaign, having something like the hotline, right? So that they can call. Um, and you know, when you call the National Human Trafficking Hotline, if you are under the age of 18, the protocol is a little different, right? So if, if you call the hotline, you're under 18 um, and there is information about you being you know, exploited or endangered, there, there is an obligation that the hotline would report. If you are an adult, however, um, there's gonna be no action taken if you don't want it to be taken, right? So, so it's entirely up to the person who calls. So we'll have cases that go on for months where that person's just not ready. They, they wanna hear what it might look like to leave, where they might go, right? Um, and they can call as many times as they need to until you know, they maybe get to the point they say, okay, I'm ready. And then there's a plan in place um, and they inform that plan, right? The hotline provides options. Like this is, this, these are some things that we could do. What, what is gonna make the most sense for your situation because survivors know how to keep themselves safe best. Organizations don't. They don't like the person who is surviving the situation knows how to keep themselves safe and way better than any outside person. And especially not, you know, an entire organization that has, you know, just beat the door down protocols. So. And can you remind our listeners what that hotline number is? So yes, the national human trafficking hotline number is one 888 888. You can also text be free and uh, that number is 233-733 or uh, the word be free. Um, so text or call. Um, there's also chat if you go to the website, which is nationalhumantraffickinghotline.org. Thank you. Of course. And is that just for victims? Anyone can call. Um, so, you know, when we first, when we, the, the hotline first got started, we had, a, um, we had people who just wanted to learn more, right? Those kinds of calls are, are not so much the scope now, but uh, certainly someone who sees something that they want to report, um, that does not mean we will report to law enforcement, right? We will not take a survivor's agency away, but we will listen. We will take the information. It could be there's some intervention. It, again, it's very individual. Um, and, and very specific to what we know is important for survivor empowerment and response. Um, but yeah, if you see something, call.
call, call the hotline and explain what you're seeing because that person on the phone, our advocates can walk you through what you're seeing, right? And listen, because it very well could be that there's something going on. Um, it could be that we have had other tips about that same situation that then when you have that constellation of events might trigger um, an intervention of response where it wouldn't otherwise. Um, so community members can call, um, we'll get service providers, right? So someone who's actually providing um, some kind of service to a victim or survivor may call. Um, and then we do obviously get uh, victims and survivors calling themselves. I think some of the hardest cases that I ever had when I was, you know, I started out answering the phones on the hotline um, in 2012. And some of the most child, the difficult cases were parents who called that were terrified for their kids, right? Like, I don't know what to do. I have, you know, my kid ran away. I hadn't seen them. Um, and just walking them through, like, how to approach that, right? Like, what do you do with next steps? Our law enforcement contacts in the hotline are all trained in trafficking, right? Um, not everyone is. And making sure that you have a response in which the person actually knows what trafficking is and looks like and how to respond in a trauma-informed, um, you know, survivor-centered way is critical. And so, you know, if you are a parent and you're concerned that your kid, you know, could possibly be exploited, the hotline would be a great place to, to at least start, right? Because if they can't help, if it doesn't seem like there's some, like it's within the, the wheelhouse of what the trafficking hotline does, they'll give you a referral to something that does make sense for what the needs are. Thanks so much. Is there anything more you'd like to add? No, I just really appreciate your time um, and yeah, for including me in this conversation. I, it, it's, this obviously is personal and professional for me, but I think it's, it's one of those things where um, having the opportunity to really just get the word out that, that there, is, there is harm caused by the misinformation. It's not simply like, oh, you know, we can correct that later. Like it actually does harm um, people and, and kids. So thank you again for, for including me in this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and for the benefit of your extensive expertise in multiple domains. I think that this will be really informative for our listeners and I'm really grateful that, that you were able to join us. So if people want to learn more, you gave the hotline and they also should visit the uh, National Human Trafficking Hotline. Is there a website or just go to Polaris Project? Uh, you can go to Polaris Project. There's information there. Um, and actually, you can get the hotline website through um, the Polaris Project. So, yeah, if you'd like to uh, go to the National Human Trafficking Hotline website, it is humantraffickinghotline.org. Thanks so much. You can find me online at uh, Karen. I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P.I. like the number pie. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, where we tackle political arubarus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, because like icon Shirley Chisholm, we remain unbought and unbossed. You can support us non-financially by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or sharing about us on social media so that other people can find us. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth.